Welcome to Running Virtually with Just Plain Dave, episode 79, Falmouth Race Report and Observing Delights. Well, hello, my friends. This is Just Plain Dave, and this is a brief race report for the Falmouth in the Fall Road Race. So, starting in 1973, almost 50 years ago, some elite runners from Boston, so this includes like, excuse me, Bill Rogers and some of those folks who were, used to win the Boston Marathon back in the early 70s, they were hanging out at a drinking establishment called Captain Kids, which is a bar in Woods Hole. And as stories go, there was a, a challenge like, oh, how, fa- how fast do you think we can go? I will race you from this bar to another bar in Falmouth Heights. So Woods Hole is part of Falmouth. Falmouth Heights is another part of Falmouth. And it is almost exactly seven miles along the curvy coastal road to get from Captain Kids to what used to be the Boston Beer Company. It may have actually been something before that. Uh, the current end, end point is called Shipwrecked. That's another brewery. So Shipwrecked bought out, bought, out, bought out the Boston Beer Company. And it is the Falmouth Road Race. And so in the summer, so the July version of this is huge. And it has a big cash purse, like ten dollars or $15,000 for the winner. And it draws elites from all over the world. Some of the fastest distance runners in the world come to run this quirky little seven-mile road race because uh, it comes with some pretty good bragging rights and a pretty nice paycheck for a seven-mile race. So that started in 1973. Starting in 1979, the event organizers have done something called Falmouth in the Fall, which is for basically for local runners. There's no prize. I mean, the, the prize is the, the cup of clam chowder. Say it right, chowder. You get at the finish line. So there's coffee and chowder and, uh, and cider donuts and all sorts of good New England stuff. Um, and this year, instead of a hat or a t- I'm sorry, instead of a T-shirt or a medal, which are kind of traditional prizes, swag you would get for completing a race, uh, this year's prize is a winter hat, like a beanie hat with a pom-pom on top that says Falmouth in the Fall. And frankly, between you and me, it's a really nice winter hat. So I couldn't be happier. Um, The road race in the summer has 8,000 runners. So the start area, this little village center in Woods Hole, is a river of people. It's just absolutely mobbed. The race that I did this past Sunday had 800 people. And so one-tenth of that, and it still felt really crowded. So I felt like 800 people was still a big group to be in. Um, But it, it was just good fun. It was a perfect fall morning. Uh, it was the day of daylight savings time. So there's a, the, the bonus extra hour of sleep. Um, oh no, I'm wrong. That was a week earlier. Doesn't matter. Uh, it was a beautiful day. It, the race doesn't start until 11 a.m., which is good because if you're going to go and run from one bar to another, it's nice to finish at a beverage serving establishment and actually have a beverage. Um, and having a beverage afternoon on a Sunday feels a little different than when you finish a half marathon at 9 a.m. Um, on a Sunday. That's the 9 a.m. feels like a funny time to have a, a cold adult beverage uh, on a fall morning. It was a beautiful day. It was a really cool 
meetup for me because one of my coworkers, Amy, and her husband, Eric, they ran and I got to see them before the race and did a one mile warm up kind of to get loose with them. Uh, my friend Chris, who I've known since we were five years old, he and his daughter Allison were running and had a few other friends kind of in the mix. And so we got together kind of before and after the race. That was great. Um, my Cape Cod running friends, so who I go down to Sandy Neck Beach in Sandwich, Massachusetts, many weekend mornings, three of those guys were there. And, uh, and actually, and of course, because it's Southern New England, I ran into someone I know who's a, a parent from my kid's school. So who I hadn't seen in a few years. So it's kind of like, hey, there's Jack. And got to nice, have a nice chat with Jack before the race, which actually turned into a funny side story, which is I was chatting with this person, Jack, as the race organizers, like calling everyone to get ready to the start line. And so I just kind of joined the river of people where I was, which turned out to be quite a ways back from the start line. It took me 24 seconds of walking to get from where I was standing to the start line, um, which, you know, kind of is no big deal because the, the clock goes from when you cross the start line to when you cross the finish line. Um, but the, the one negative to that was uh, someone in my age group. I came in fourth in my age group by a difference of six seconds. Um, but I never saw that person because that person was 24 seconds ahead of me out on the road. And so like, as I was like running and holding my pace, there's, there's a slight chance I could have gone six seconds faster, um, but only barely. And so that's what I want to share. So it was a great race. Like I have done a handful of half marathons this fall. So my distance, uh, my base foundation running strength was good, but my speed I hadn't tested in a long time. And so I had given myself this goal of trying to run seven minute miles. And so like for that last half marathon that I did, my average pace for 13 miles was just over seven and a half, like seven, seven minutes, 33 seconds or something like that. was my average pace for the half marathon, which is pretty good. That's, that's fast for an old guy. And, uh, Anyway, so my goal was seven minutes, and I really, really, really wasn't sure if I was capable of that. Um, and, and I knew that if I was going to do that, I'd be working hard. Uh, you know, seven miles, seven minutes, that's 49 minutes of working hard, um, where, where often the last time I probably worked really hard was a, a 5K. You know, it's like 20 or 21 minutes of working hard. So this is a kind of running right at your limit. You can't go beyond your limit or you'll kind of burn your energy and, and kind of cramp up or have some other point of failure. So I was working hard. Um, and the first three miles of this race are pretty hilly. Now, these are Cape Cod hills. These are not like, you know, Midwest, Pennsylvania, you know, Adirondacks kind of hills. Um, but it's a bunch of like 60 to 80 foot climbs and drops. And, uh, and that's all in the first three miles. And so for that part, I'm really, really pleased. Like my, it, it took me a little while of, uh, first I had to walk to the start line and then I had this kind of group of people in front of me who were not necessarily going the same pace as me. So my first half mile was a little bit slow because I was kind of weaving and bobbing and trying to get around some people until I got some daylight and, and was running with people who going, going my pace. Um, but so for that first two and a half, three miles, my average pace was almost exactly seven minutes. It was like, you know, for a little bit, it was 6.58 and then 7.05, but it was kind of really close. Um, but, but, but slightly over seven minutes per mile. But once I hit that midway point, like three miles in, the course is very flat. It's running along a coastal road, kind of riding al right along a beach. 
And, um, and at that point, my pace was great. Like I was running at like 649, 650. Like this is, this is me working really, really hard. Those are tough miles to be able to hold that pace. And, uh, and my heart rate was just cranking. I was probably near max for the whole, whole 49 minutes. Um, but I was really pleased with that. And there were two, two water stops. So one at about mile three, one at about mile five. And at each of those, I took a, a cup of water and walked for about 10 seconds. So this average pace includes a couple short walk breaks because I know that one, it helps my heart rate just kind of stay a little bit lower. And two, I'm actually going to get the water in my mouth if I walk and drink at the same time. Um, and so I took two short walk breaks and... Um, and then you get to mile six and the road has made a little bit of a bend around this little cove, which is where the, the ferry that goes to Martha's Vineyard is. And all of a sudden the road turns southerly right into the wind. So from mile six to like mile 6.5, you have a headwind and, but you're also like less than one mile from the finish. I was working so hard. Like I was right at about like this 651, 653 pace, but man, did it feel like I was working harder. Like I was trying really hard to maintain that pace because we had a pretty, a pretty good headwind. Now, the reason we had a really good headwind for that like four tenths of a mile was that for the first six miles, we had a tailwind. That same wind was pushing us along. So it was a huge advantage um, to have a tailwind for almost the whole race. Then you're at mile six and a half and you take this left-hand bend, the road makes a curve, the wind is at your shoulder again, and you have a climb. And it's the last little climb into Falmouth Heights. And uh, it's like a 30-foot hill. So this is nothing. That's, that's a nothing hill in almost any other circumstance. But when you've burned all your energy and you're 90% of your way into a, a 49, 50-minute race, man, did that feel like hard work. So I just kind of shortened up my stride, pumped my arms, focused on form, and just like was working so, so hard. And then you crest that little hill and you have about a two, two tenths of a mile uh, d- descent, little decline down to the finish line, at which point you can kind of stretch. I, I thought I was stretching out my stride and kind of extending it and going a little bit faster. And I, I did go a little bit faster. I, I finished at about like a 646 pace, um, which was my fastest for the race. So I did have a nice little finish for that last two tenths of a mile. Um, but the couple of photos, I had a couple of friends near the finish line, they took photos and it does not look like I am stretching out my stride. It looks like I am stressing and straining and working really hard, um, but it, it does not look like the fluid flow, comfortable motion of an elite runner. This looked like, you know, a middle-aged guy working his tail off. Um, Anyway, so I was super pleased and my finish time was 48.53, so exactly six minutes and 59 seconds per mile, um, which really is as good as I could have done. Um, so that person who beat me by six seconds, I, my thought is if I had known they were in front of me along the way, it might have been someone I could have been chasing for those last two miles and maybe made up those six seconds, but, but I really don't know. I don't know if he finished strong or, or if he was fading at the end. Um, so that's, that's pure speculation. Um, but the other thing I, sh- I wanted to share is, so as I'm cruising along, because I had all these different groups of people that I knew that were there, there were also friends and family kind of cheering at the finish line. And so afterwards, after I finished and, you know, got warmed up, I was chatting with these folks and like, Dave, you never even looked at us. Like we were cheering for you, yelling your name. Like I wore my shirt with my name on it, which is my, my uh, typical race thing to do. 
And I never, like, they're like, you were so focused. You were so locked in. And I'm like, uh, yep, apparently I was. Like, this was what I wanted to do, and I was going to work hard. And, uh, and it was a complete success. And uh, nice to hang out. Nice to have a beverage and a cider donut at the end. Um, I even ate the clam chowder. Um, it was tasty. I would go back for more. And, uh, and then spent a wonderful afternoon with friends on Cape Cod. So I will call it a resounding success. It was joyous and good fun. And, uh, and it was fun to try hard. Like, like I've had a few races this fall where it was kind of go with friends and, and chat and have conversations. Um, and in this situation, it was very much a focus on speed and try as hard as I could. And, and that, was, that was good too. It was a good physical challenge. So from Southeastern Massachusetts, this is Just Plain Dave. Well, good morning, my friends. Daylight savings time is recently changed. And, or what are we on? Daylight standing time, whatever. We should not be doing this. This is a very old fashioned way to screw up everybody's clocks. But because of that, it's a little bit light, lighter in the morning. I'm going for a walk before work and usually we do a short walk. But now that it's a little more lighter out, let's take advantage. And I thought I would share with you I, uh, I've been reading a little bit about happiness and joy and gratitude. And one that I just heard discussed yesterday was delight. So it's just looking for the little things and saying, oh, that is delightful. Like something that adds a spark of, a momentary spark of happiness or joy or whatever. Something that just brings a positive feeling and doesn't have to have long-term meaning doesn't have to be big picture life-changing but the person who was speaking their thesis was that when you start to notice these little little things around you during the day it uh, it enhances your overall gratitude like you feel like a little more grateful for who you are and where you are and you're standing in the universe and and of course it makes you smile which helps your body release neurochemicals like dopamine and endorphin and lower your cortisol levels, which is de- decreasing your stress. So literally just t- taking the time, and, and part of this is doing it without a device in hand. And I know I'm holding my device to talk to you. But so like not walking around staring at your device, triggering your little happiness cues with notifications from Facebook or Strava or whatever. It was basically just recognizing there are these little delights, little dopamine hits waiting for you all around you. And I've had a couple recently. So right as we started this, started this walk, so it's early November. In my neighborhood, the maple trees have all lost their leaves. The elms and beech, mostly, mostly those are down. But the oak trees mostly have their leaves still. Um, which, as I look at the ground, there's a lot of oak leaves. But as I look up, there's a lot more oak leaves up in the trees. So we're kind of in that middle wave of leaves falling and so one of my delights was from, from very high up in an oak. So the, the big canopy oak trees here are 75 to 80 feet tall. I, I just had looked up and saw a leaf and it was just slowly, slowly pinwheeling down, just kind of just drifting like a feather on the wind. And so I just sat here and watched it and stood still for a moment. And it was just, just beautiful in how 
it moved kind of randomly, but, but smoothly and gently. But I could not predict, like, was going to twist slightly to the left or kind of rotate slightly clockwise. Um, yeah, it was just fascinating. And, you know, it took, you know, four or five seconds, you know, longer, longer than you might think, but not unreasonably. Um, yeah, actually, so we had a big storm a few weeks ago that knocked out power in southern New England in a lot of places. And uh, I just walked past the place where the tree, the tree on my street, the, the once, a, once a storm, we lose a tree on my street. But uh, I walked past that one and I'm just crossed under a really big oak that has been leaning over the road for 20 years. Here, here's a little delight. So I'm walking by a neighbor's house and there's an orange cat sitting in, like there's French windows, like those four side-by-side tall windows, just in, sitting there in that kind of uh, Egyptian cat pose that you would recognize, just watching me go by, you know, front, front paws by the window, back haunches down, ears up, just going by like a little radar, radar dish, rotating to, to watch the pedestrian go by. So that was, uh, that leaf was delightful. That cat was delightful. You know, just taking a moment to notice it and think, oh, it's just doing its job, being curious, but uh, protect, protecting its universe, right? Protecting its world. Um, I had two other delights I wanted to share. So one I saw yesterday in the sunshine. I have two cats and a dog. You're familiar with brown dog. The two cats are named Micah and Milo. And uh, they're both barn cats from the same litter from a horse barn in town. Uh, they're about five years old, plus or minus. And they're both orange, like kind of orange sherbet colored, but mixed with white. So um, Milo has got strangely short hair, or not strangely, but his hair is, is short and smooth and silky. But Micah is a fluff ball. She is a super long haired cat. And so her fur has kind of two layers to it. There's kind of, I'll say, inch to inch and a half long kind of base fur that's kind of all over her. And then she has like these two to two and a half inch long hairs that are very wispy and kind of stick out from her, from her body in all directions. <laughs> Just makes her look super fuzzy. She looks like a cartoon, uh, exaggerated cartoon of a cat. But one of the things that delights me is, and so, and Milo is sleek like a panther and he moves with stealth and with grace. But Micah trundles along like a grizzly bear so who has been like fully stocked up for winter, you know. And she's not especially fat, but she is, she trundles. She kind of just carries herself as if she's much more rotund than she actually is. Um, but when she does that, her fur waves in the wind. You know, she's not moving fast. She's like just bundling along the backyard. Um, but you know, if you see a video of amber waves of grain, like, so the grain is just kind of like flowing with the steady breeze or the steady wind going over it. And it's making this pattern of kind of, uh, it looks like waves crossing through the, the standing up, uh, fields of grain. Anyway, Google that. And that's what the cat's fur looks like. It totally has this, um, this pattern and it's just how, how these, uh, not molecules, how, how the hairs act. It's just, it's beautiful in a cool, but a scientific way, but not, you know, not important scientific, just interesting. And it reminds me back to when my kids were younger, uh, there was a Pixar movie called uh, Monsters, Inc. And so it was like the idea of these uh, cartoon monsters. Anyway, they, they gathered screams and scares. Like so that's how they powered their universe. And, uh, but I remember watching a behind the scenes 
uh, episode from that, from that movie or behind the scenes, the making of the movie, and how much computer power it took to make something that looked like a hairy monster have their fur look real. You know, that, that image that I was seeing with the cat running across the yard with the fur kind of moving in the wind and the breeze. And at the time, so that's probably 15 or 17 years ago, um, the computer power was like, it was like what, basically the equivalent of what NASA had its, its hands, hands on for uh, computational power. Um, of course, now we all carry powerful computers in our pockets. Um, anyway, it just delights me that the cat's fur can do that naturally, but it takes a bunch of designers and computer engineers much effort and energy to make a cartoon look like that in animation. And then the last delight I was going to share, again, from this walk today, out in the morning, first thing, the sun is barely above the horizon. It's kind of, the sky is very light. And I saw a tree branch shuffling. And I looked up and it's probably about 45 feet up. And there's a gray squirrel, your average, typical run of the mill, nothing special about it, gray squirrel. So I stopped and watched it for a moment. And so it was making its way across the woods adjacent to my road. Now here we've got an un a true understory, like kind of undergrowth of vines and prickers, bull briar. There's, you know, there's ferns on the ground. It's really dense, dense on the ground. And there's some evergreen, but the evergreen trees here, like short needle spruce type things, aren't very tall. They're probably 30 feet tall. The maple trees is the next real level. And they probably get, you know, they range from 15 to 20 feet tall up to like probably 40 feet tall. They're just, just a bit taller than the, the highest power lines on the utility poles. And then above them are the big oak trees, the, the grand old oaks. Some of those are 70 to 80 feet tall. And so I watched the squirrel probably for two minutes as it went from tree to tree and picked its way, but it, it was stopping and planning. So it would kind of jump from, from like go up one branch, like it's kind of going upward like from the trunk of the tree up, diagonally up, finds a spot, jumps across to the next tree, now has to go down towards the trunk, diagonally down, and then stops near the trunk, does its kind of look around, it's re re doing reconnaissance, it's reconnoitering and looking to see, like, there goes the milkman in the Monroe dairy truck, which is a white, a white box truck with cow dots and a cow tail painted on it, bring in the fresh milk to the neighborhood, um, and this, but the squirrel literally just like, it would pause briefly and then, you know, make its next move and kind of run up the next branch. And, and I watched it for probably two minutes and it never made a mistake. I mean, of course it has multiple options, but there are dead ends. Like there's, you could go out on a limb and say, Ooh, okay. There's not a, there's not a safe leap to the next tree from here. And it was fascinating because that squirrel's brain is like the size of a walnut. Maybe, maybe it's the size of a grape and you know, we human beings with our big massive brains, we, we think we're, uh, we're special in how we plan and communicate and do things with intent. And we kind of anthropomorphize our pets and we, we love our cats and dogs and we, we give them special attributes because we kind of, we project our emotions and feelings onto them, which is fine, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I would hardly ever do that to a squirrel. But watching that squirrel, I could see that it was thinking and planning 
And I don't know what its intent was. Well, I do, I guess. Its intent was, let me get from this part of, this part of the forest to that part of the forest. And of course, the oak trees are, are the wonder ground right now with tons and tons of acorns. Um, I saw an article recently, I had it very recently, like, that squirrels will store 70 times their own body weight in, in nuts and stuff for, for the winter, <laughs> partly because they lose it. Um, but isn't that fascinating? I mean, I guess because you're going to store up all your fuel. Going grocery shopping right now, it's going to last you three months. Better buy up, stock up. Um, anyway, I thought it was just delightful. Delightful to watch the squirrel do its thing. And, uh, and nice to smile and wave at the milkman. So with that, I'm going to wrap up. Happy trails, my friends.